Night Talk, giving you depth and texture to the conversations that matter. 27 minutes to the top of the hour. You're listening to Night Talk. My name is Oliver Dixon. Thank you so much for joining me. Really do appreciate it. Give us a call 86 in reaction to the conversations that we are having here. South Africa has a principled position of non-alignment when it comes to conflict involving global superpowers. Um, we saw this play out in the Russia-Ukraine conflict and persistently play out so, but not so much in the Israel conflict. Is Israel a global superpower? Perhaps not, but by proxy to the U.S. it certainly is, right? Um, it, what, what can we learn from the last set of conflicts that have taken place that involve global superpowers about South Africa's foreign policy alignment and position. Is there a pattern or is it sort of all over the place and we sort of have to just string it together and, 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 and try to make as much sense of it as possible? These are the sort of things that Professor Patrick Bond thinks about quite a lot. Prof. Bond, good evening. Thank you so much for your time. Once again, really good to speaking to you. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Oliver. You're the sharpest uh, interviewer uh, late at night. I, I can't wait for the challenge. <laughs> I mean, the last time you and I had a chat, I got a, a call from the, uh, uh, the, the, the powers that be in South African uh, di- diplomacy, and, and we then subsequently had a chat with them after that, and they wanted to correct some stuff that uh, you and uh, Professor Anthony had said <laughs> in that last conversation. And I no doubt, have no doubt this would play out the same way. Do, do we have a consistent policy, foreign policy position pertaining very specifically to how we position ourselves where, when conflict takes place? I know we fashion ourselves as some sort of mediatory interlocutor, but we don't always have the position and, and, and the airspace to do that. But what, what, what is there a consistent position that we can point to? Well, it's very tr- uh, tricky because there's the two big conflicts, these terrible wars underway, genocide of Palestinians in Gaza, and then the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You know, I- I'd like to toss in uh, two more, and I sure. think there's one commonality that will help us work them through. The other two are the wars our own SANDF are engaged in. One has displaced seven million people. It's the worst. That's in the Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, the other is, and, and that's really over uh, the resource curse in yeah. that uh, part of the world um, and the difficulty of that state to, to really lock down, especially in relation to its its neighbors, uh, control of, of precious metals, of minerals, of, of uh, potential oil. Now, the second is just uh, to our east and north. It's uh, Cabo Delgado, the so-called blood methane. Yeah. And there we also have our SANDF troops. And in that war, we are uh, more or less defending Total Energies, the French company, ExxonMobil, in alliance with China National Petroleum Corporation, and Eni, the Italians, in alliance with BP. Those are the, the five oil companies that the SCNDF are uh, essentially protecting because Emmanuel Macron asked uh, in May 2021 Sir Ramaphosa to join the Rwandans and put them there. So let's put those two in if, if we can. And then there's the overarching question of BRICS because BRICS is becoming BRICS plus yeah. and the contradictions and schizophrenia that must be going on in their foreign ministries and all the different uh, factions, three of the big uh, new members, Egypt uh, and Saudi Arabia and UAE, connected very closely to the US and in many ways partly to blame for how terrible things have become because Saudi Arabia was about to 
signed the so-called Abraham Accords in alliance with Israel, as UAE had done in Egypt. We know how uh, brutal they've been to Palestinians. They won't yeah. let them out the, uh, the, the, the border uh, crossing. But also there's Iran and Ethiopia, which about 10 days ago joined the U.S. to, uh, well, have an abstention. The U.S. voted no on the request for a ceasefire in the General Assembly at the U.N. Now, this is a complicated mix, you'd have to agree. And so to sort out where South Africa's national interests and where the elite interests who are kind of pulling the strings and where the hot rhetoric, which we sometimes call talk left, walk right, yeah. where that leads us. Well, we could spend a few hours on this one. Perhaps let's let's speak about the ones that are not so obvious first, right? I mean, I think uh, the conflict in Palestine and, and, and the ongoing genocide there of the Palestinian people and uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine are perhaps the more obvious ones where uh, Durko and the presidency has to be a lot more louder on um, uh, given the public interest there. But the public interest in South Africa pertaining to what's happening um, in Mozambique and in, in the DRC is far less uh, as, as, as heightened as those, right? And so the interests of the French and the Chinese uh, in those oil oil refineries and oil uh, exploration projects are a lot more mummed. Um, and, and, and that's really where global superpower interests are playing out in those proxy conflicts. So perhaps let's talk then about the DRC. Are we learning anything there about our foreign policy position in the DRC? Yes, I mean, I think uh, early on in 2013, don't forget that the major commitment to the DRC was made um, at the time that uh, our troops were being beat in the Central African Republic. Do you remember the Battle of Bangui? That was March 2013. And there were so tragically about 15 of uh, the SANDF troops were, were killed in defending uh, the uh, government there. And that was the government of Francois Bouzézé. And we know subsequently that between the Mbeki government and uh, Jacob Zuma, there were deals done and they involved Chancellor House. And that was, uh, to some extent, uh, an explanation for our troops being there to, in a sense, assist some of our top uh, political uh, and politically connected figures with their accumulation. There were there were deals in diamonds and oil that were uncovered. And then over in the Eastern DRC, just when Jacob Zuma was putting in uh, the troops, uh, it was determined that his nephew, Kulabusi, had a $10 billion stake given to him by the leader at the time of the, the DRC, uh, uh, Kabila. And that was, a, a, I think, a ca catastrophic uh, decision to join uh, MONUSCO, the, uh, the United Nations group, because the South African troops, even though they defeated uh, the M13, one of the guerrilla movements using yeah. the sophisticated South African weaponry, the Roy flag especially, we really got bogged down and we still are. And that is a, a case where the local residents have been protesting and being shot by uh, Monusco um, and local you know, uh, armies and all. It was it's, it's basically a terrible mess. And the only winners are those particularly from uh, East Asia who connect into the uh, coal tan and the the raw materials and minerals, and they're getting a very cheap labor, child labor, and they're getting you know no regulation as they pull out those minerals, often through Rwanda, right? And so those are those are aspects where we we definitely have some South African fingerprints, or even I would say I think I can name names because these yeah. are all in the public 
uh, the main p- great men like Tokyo Sakwali, once the premier here in Gauteng and a housing minister, but he gets into these mineral deals with some dodgy figures. And, uh, you know, some of them are notoriously international. And uh, Dan Gertler is this famous Israeli who really is ripped off. So, so has uh, Glencore, right? And they have been prosecuted and paid billions of dollars in fines. And South Africans tend to be sort of facilitators or right there at their, you know, at their elbow. And sometimes we bring our troops in and what we sometimes would call this to the sort of logic of imperialism from the West with the sub-imperial Eastern facilitators who do the mining, but they sometimes need black bodies. And that's the tragedy that these white companies in Paris with a white president, Emmanuel Macron, a white president of the country, uh, of the company, Patrick Pouyanné, really need Cyril Ramaphosa and SANDF 1200 troops to go and do the dirty work, the wet, the wet work, as they call it. So, I mean, I think this is just an appalling situation that is so rarely raised, whether in DRC or, or Mozambique, where we have these two big troop contingents. And they really are doing sub-imperialist deputy sheriff duty for big extractive industries connected to, you know, Western politicians, and especially in the case of Macron and his connections to Total. Does this at all explain uh, Macron's long-shot attempt at getting a BRICS invitation or at least some level of inclusion? It was uh, foolishness, wasn't it? That was, was um, I think, a shot in the dark by uh, Macron, who was also doing his best to sort of say, well, with Angela Merkel not there, maybe he can be seen as some breakthrough leader of Europe. Uh, because Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor who, who replaced Angela Merkel, who had been the sort of leader of Europe, just wasn't up to the job. So I could see him moving around, moving to China, moving, you know, trying to keep the connections open to to Russia, trying to play some sort of honest broker role. But we know what he's about from, you know, that history, particularly where, uh, you know, French uh, imperialists in Africa, certainly being booted out over the past um, few months by uh, West African armies who are just fed up with the, the way the French operate. I would say the same for, uh, you know, most of the other Europeans and, and their exceptional, let me call it a illiberalism or, or proto-fascistic uh, repression of Palestinian uh, solidarity protesters. I mean, my, uh, my daughter, 14 years old, is in Germany now she's not allowed to go out and to uh, show some sympathy for the Gazans who are being subjected to genocide because it's illegal in, in Berlin where she lives. And these are the sorts of things that uh, make us think, well, these Europeans, they talk a, a good game about, you know, liberal democracy. But when it comes to the crunch and they're very tightly allied with the U.S. and, of course, with Israel, they won't even allow you to have a yeah. you know, nonviolent demonstration. So just to circle back, uh, South Africa's foreign policy decisions, actions and approach to what's happening in the DRC and in Mozambique is not related to principle, but rather related to expediency and uh, material interests, material interests of specific individuals and not broadly the country. Yeah, I mean, but isn't it interesting for us to think about ideology, not just, um, you know, I could become a vulgar Marxist and make some arguments about uh, how the ANC made a U-turn in early March 2022 because a Russian, uh, you know, tycoon from the manganese mine that was partly owned by the Chancellor House ANC investment wing, Victor Vexberg, suddenly was able to support the ANC at a time of crucial 
close to bankruptcy. Then sort of 10 million rand popped in and suddenly the ANC changed uh, the national uh, position, which when they'd been up for a vote uh, a few days before in the United Nations General Assembly, South Africa voted with the majority, the vast majority, that that Russia should end the invasion immediately and pull the troops out. So that sort of U-turn makes one tempted to make some, some let's say, vulgar uh, Marxist, you know, materialist uh, argument. Yeah. But I think it's fun to say, well, what kind of ideology is in play? Because it certainly leads us back to how to explain uh, the closeness to a nostalgia for a Soviet Union, for the you know the old Russian, but you know at the time also of course Ukrainian role in uh, supporting the struggle for liberation. So Oliver, let's just think. I mean, we have maybe as an exemplary figure of talk left, but walk right. We have a figure uh, who uh, passed away. Uh, ultimately in 2019, Robert Mugabe, but for his whole career, certainly he mastered that, right? And that was the extent to which you could um, draw the attention of the world and maybe placate some of your own angry people with anti-imperialist rhetoric. But at the same time, you were doing quite repressive things at home. And I fear that's the tendency, the talk left, walk right, that we begin to see as a sort of commonality of the ideologies. So the talk left is certainly to be in alliance with Palestine rhetorically. And that was, again, today, let's call on the International Criminal Court, as our foreign minister, Naledi Pandor, did in parliament. Let's call on the ICC not to be hypocritical. And, you know, they've got uh, Vladimir Putin on an arrest warrant for his crimes against uh, humanity, his, his war crimes and kidnapping 20,000 children from uh, eastern Ukraine. So we should put uh, uh, we should put uh, the Israeli state and, and especially uh, uh, we should put uh, the leadership of, of especially a, a very fascistic uh, government uh, into into the ICC as well. But yeah. the dilemma is that South Africa continues to have very tight ties with Israel. We have uh, an El Al flight moving in and out all the time. We have uh, a fair bit of trade. It's uh, uh, you know that, hundreds that, of millions of, of dollars. We've also got um, arms. That notwithstanding, this seems to be the loudest and clearest and most steadfast the South African government has been uh, in their condemnation of Israel, or at least uh, tacit condemnation of Israel in their clear support for the people of Palestine. Yes, it's great to hear that. I'm all for it. I've spent a week in Gaza and the place where I lectured, uh, the Islamic University, you know, now just a, a, a parking lot. It's awful. So I'm all for that. And all, I think all of the protesters out who've demanded that uh, South Africa do more to show that would love to see the next step, which is to expel the Israeli ambassador. There was a little bit of talk in the in the cabinet meeting. You might have seen their statement uh, yesterday, which was, uh, I think, a little bit too um, touchy. It was like, you know, the, the Israeli ambassador is insulting us. That was the sort of essence, yeah. rather than get to the essence of, uh, you know, maybe breaking these ties the way other countries have done recently. Uh, Colombia and uh, Chile and uh, Bolivia, they're a long way away. The ties aren't as strong, but there are some important economic ties, the diamond trade, but also I think the military, because it, again, I would come back to what really goes on behind the scenes. If if you recall, uh, Oliver, in June, there was a, a peace mission that President Ramaphosa, I think, courageously led to both Kiev and then to Moscow. When he was in Kiev, it seems like the Russians hadn't got them the memo and there was bombing of the city at the same time he was there. And then uh, 
nothing much happened. But the man behind it, you might know the name, Ivor Ichikovitz. Uh, he and uh, a Belgian uh, friend of his were trying to organize this, and they appeared as, as fairly central to the way in which yeah. the logistics happened or didn't happen. But he's actually set up an office in Tel Aviv. He brags about it on his website, the Paramount Group. And he says, yeah, in 2021, having moved to Dubai as a major, you know, sort of uh, headquarters city, he could then, um, as the UAE did their uh, Abram Accord deal, they could now move into Tel Aviv. And the man that they've hired in Tel Aviv, who's the so-called vice president for Europe, although I don't know about that. I mean, he's basically the Israeli employee. He's a former uh, Israeli Defense Force Lieutenant Colonel. His name is Shane Cohen, and he's a specialist in uh, in drones, and especially, you know, the so-called kamikaze drones that hover over you, yeah. their munitions, and then they can come and find you, and they, they call, they're called loitering munitions. And lo and behold, Paramount simply offers this up uh, uh, just a, a few weeks ago, as a new, as a new, uh, you know, skill of theirs, a new, a new, you know, part of their portfolio. These are the sorts of things, Oliver, that make me wonder behind the scenes. Not only did uh, did Chikovitz help uh, Ramaphosa, but he also helped Jacob Zuma move around to places like Kazakhstan and Lebanon and the United States. That's been well documented. And also, he works closely with Kalema Matlanti. That's three presidents we've had in which this man, Ivor Chikovitz. Paramount Group and the Israeli connection, his, his Zionism and the Ichikovitz Family Foundation, very tight with the sort of IDF and promoting, you know, their spiritual needs on their website. This is the sort of thing that makes me think, well, there's a lot we don't really hear about that helps explain talk left, walk right, the ideology that I mentioned. Yeah. Well, one of the subsidiaries of Paramount Group is TransAfrica Capital. Are they involved in any of the transactions and deals pertaining to the energy uh, security that South Africa is providing in, 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 in uh, the, the Congo and as well as in Mozambique? I'm asking well, this purely uh, It's opaque. That that I don't know. But I do know that they have um, a shipping company called Nautic out of Cape Town that sends uh, basically rapid warships to the Niger Delta to help big oil there. That's well documented. But also that Ichikovitz, the Paramount Group, bought uh, a, a sort of military advisory, a private military company, some call them mercenaries, called Burnham International, which was you know full of sort of British military folk who'd worked in Iraq. And they're the ones in Mozambique who took over, if you recall, Oliver um, the, was the Dyke um, Advisory Group uh, of uh, Lionel Dyke, working out of the West Coast of South Africa, that had put their uh, few men and helicopters in. And then in March 2021, do you remember there was a terrible gunfight where 40 people were killed in Palma, right next to the the Total Energy's $10 billion refinery right there, liquefied natural gas processing plant. Yeah. And at that point, then, uh, because the Wagner Group were even shot uh, sufficiently that they had to leave uh, in late 2019, they were really looking for not only SANDF and the Rwandans and the Southern uh, African Mission in Mozambique, but they were looking for this private military that works also along with Europeans and the US AFRICOM to train the Mozambicans. And they chose Ichikovitz and the Paramount Group with his new acquisition, Burnham. So it's a it's a it's quite a serious set of tentacles. And of course, when you think about the damage of climate catastrophe that 
comes from the Niger Delta and that will come from the uh, eastern, the north, the eastern Mozambique, where the, the cyclones are just tearing up the place every every couple of years, right? Cyclone Freddie uh, this year, uh, we had uh, Cyclone Ide, Cyclone Kenneth in 2019, uh, thousands dead and terrible damage, and that's coming from fossil fuels. And yet the third largest methane gas field in the world in northern Mozambique is what uh, Ivor Chukovitz and SENDF are working very closely together to defend for the profits of Total Energies. It's quite diabolical, and it makes me quite angry that our our funds are going there. I mean, it's Enoch Anaguana, our finance minister, is cutting the funding, but still, that's a, an awful way for us to deploy desperately needed troops that could be out building roads and fixing all the, the damage from our climate catastrophe, which they have done a little bit of, and instead they're making the situation much worse. Yeah. Uh, so perhaps to just cadence it here, uh, Professor Bond, in, 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 in what ways can we locate and sketch out what the current influences are of South Africa's foreign policy uh, decisions, specifically also where there are active conflicts involved? Well, if uh, on the surface you do observe a schizophrenia, sort of a, being pulled in different directions, having terrible U.S. Um, let's say pressures, such as the uh, Ambassador Ruben Brigetti uh, saying, "Okay, there's some uh, weapons being loaded into the Lady R," and then you know you're having naval exercises with the Russians, and you have cheeky statements in the ANC foreign policy. All of these things made him very angry in May and caused the RAND to crash and the, you know, everyone sort of got getting very nervous. Turns out he couldn't or wouldn't uh, document it. We've just had the last few days, the African Growth and Opportunity Act conference in Nazareth here in Johannesburg and things are beginning to calm down a little after all of that political hot air. And it does look confusing. And therefore, I think BRICS is really why we have to focus on this. We just hosted in uh, August the BRICS summit. And the contradictions within BRICS are screaming out. And South Africa plays a sort of moderating role, doesn't it? I mean, you've had uh, until earlier this year, uh, a man called Jair Bolsonaro, as president of Brazil, ripping up the bricks. He just wouldn't do anything. He wouldn't get on board with trying to get the uh, vaccines for COVID-19 off of the intellectual property. He yeah. wouldn't, uh, you know, agree to anything much. And, and, and then you've got a sort of resurgence this year with Lula coming in, dynamic and very well respected. He's just appointed his uh, uh, successors, the president there uh, in uh, 2010 to 2016, Dilma Rousseff is the president of the BRICS Bank. So you kind of feel maybe there's some momentum. And then there was lots of talk of de-dollarization. And in all of that, you felt, well, maybe this BRICS is going to be a multipolar alternative to the West. And that's where we should see South Africa's trajectory. But listen, I think I would say it didn't turn out that way. The de-dollarization was just rhetoric. It was hyped. Yeah. It was very conservative forces that wouldn't allow that to happen, including our own finance minister and, and central bank governor. But in particular, we've just got such incoherence in the BRICS, India and China fighting, the debate disputes between two versions of Islam that, that divide Iran on one hand from uh, the, uh, especially Saudi Arabia and UAE. So it's a, it's a mess out there. And I think what I would look for is the only consistency is that global corporate power is formidable it's fracturing, it cannot handle the crises, but usually you can consistently find not only South African, but many of the other BRICS leaders 
basically uh, lining up with the global corporate agenda. And that's the IMF, the World Bank, the World Trade Organization. And as we'll see later this month, that the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change hosted in one of the BRICS plus countries, UAE. Yeah. And usually at these places, you see imperialism finding a pretty loyal sub-imperial South African alliance. Yeah. And uh, the question that got us in potential trouble at the moment, uh, the last time we had a chat, was whether our d diplomatic community has the necessary depth and range to be able to navigate the complexities of international relations, foreign policy conflicts, uh, where South African interests are impacted. Your answer at the time was no, that Durko had lost the right sort of negotiators and, and foreign, foreign policy thinkers. Uh, and at the moment that there's a dearth of uh, a talent in the organization. Is that a, given how successfully President Ramaphosa was able to convince Vladimir Putin not to come to BRICS to avoid uh, the calamity of having to arrest him and given how they've been able to, uh, you know, steadfastly impose their interest in the expansion of BRICS and how they're able to take, give give a really robust position on uh, the conflict in Palestine and the ongoing genocide over there. Is that a position you still re uh, maintain about the, the depth and range of Durko? Well, I'm really glad you've asked that because it shows you have a good memory and shows that I was wrong. And I have to admit I was wrong because indeed um, a relatively... Um, let's say quiet uh, director general at Durko, Zane Dangor, has been much more active and effective. And um, the only real logistical uh, sort of folly, which was in you know, the Warsaw airport when that uh, you know, peace mission was kind of held up, at least their, their security, they messed up on how they dealt with the polls. But aside from that, they've handled all these conferences with a plumb and there's been no major flaws. And uh, certainly at the level of global uh, confidence and power politics and eloquence, we don't have uh, probably a foreign minister uh, in, in uh, post-apartheid history as good as Naledi Pandor. And President Ramaphosa is a genius. I mean, he's extremely good politically in these situations. But that still doesn't, uh, let's say, uh, to, uh, uh, prevent me from making the more critical structural case that no matter how good at the surface they might be, um, there is still the uh, underlying structural problem which pulls them still in ways that I think are destructive to the society, the economy, the environment, yeah. and that is into the big Western corporate orbit instead of really putting a, a human rights approach the way we, we had heard, you know, from Nelson Mandela, the logic of South Africa's democracy would, would lead us. Yeah. Uh, Professor Bond, we're going to have to leave it. Uh, it's, there's never enough time uh, on these sorts of conversations. But I thank you so much for your insights this evening. Really do appreciate it.